Tell me, my name is Paul Michelson, and I love Latter-day Saints, and Jesus loves them too, right? Um, whenever it comes to uh, people who are in high-demand religions, and they believe they're in the truth, when they're really walking about in darkness, that should produce a certain level of compassion and sympathy for these people. Romans 10, 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer for God, for the Israelites, is that they may be saved, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. I enjoy listening to a lot of testimonies from different religions to Christianity. It really edifies my faith. And um, there's one testimony of a man who was a, uh, a bishop in the Mormon church, and he came to Christ. And he points to this verse and says, you know, you could take the word Israelites out of this and replace it with Mormons, and it would just perfectly apply to these individuals. Because Mormons, unfortunately, they don't have the right knowledge of God. And that results in them trying to build up their own self-righteousness in order to qualify for eternal life. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15 This is always a, a good verse to kind of meditate on a little bit. If someone were to ask you the question, why are you a Christian? You know, what, what, how would you guys respond? Why do you... Why do you guys have the faith that you have? Um, in recent years, God's been teaching me primarily to focus on that last half of the verse, that last sentence, to do this with gentleness and respect. You know, um, when you have two people that have different faiths and they're both very zealous about their faith, that can be a difficult thing to do, to be self-controlled, to be respectful, and to listen. But it can be done. Jesus, uh, thank you so much for being the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of love. Um, thank you for the Mormons you have put in our lives. And um, I pray that you would uh, just use this time so that we can dig deeper into our own faith, that you would equip us to love others around us and to uh, spread the truth of your gospel and your love. Amen. Um, so whenever we set out with the goal of trying to understand the faith of other people, that can be a really good thing because it can result in um, having a more fruitful conversation with other people. If I ask someone a question about their faith and they respond, and if I properly understand what they mean when they say something, I can then respond in a more clear way in sharing the gospel is the idea and the motive behind it. Um, Last year, I gave two lessons on Mormonism and kind of covering the basic fundamental beliefs. And um, this week and the next couple of weeks, we're going to be digging a little bit deeper into some of their doctrines. And so if you missed uh, last year, those two sessions, they're, they're still on the Sunday School audio if you want to go back and listen to them. Um, but, and before I continue, I just want to lay out some terms. Uh, if I use the word Mormon Church, LDS Church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, those are all talking about the same thing. Likewise, if I say Mormon Missionary, LDS Missionary, 
missionary with, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or just the missionaries in this context, those are talking about the same things as well. I just don't want to lose anyone. So the first two things that I want to talk about are uh, the first thing being interacting with Latter-day Saints. They've been taught their entire life that the LDS church is the one true church and that Satan is going to do whatever he can to pull them out of the LDS church, whether that's making them doubt, whether it's discouraging them, just Satan's going to be constantly trying to pull them out of that one true church. And that's what they've been trained their entire life. So if you can imagine two missionaries knocking on a door and a Christian opens it, the Christian tells them, you guys are going to hell. You have a false prophet. You're preaching a false gospel. You worship a false God. You're professing a false Jesus. Slams the door. The way that the missionaries are going to process that is, yep, this is exactly what we expected. And also keeping in mind, they believe good feelings come from God. Bad feelings come from the devil. So if you give them a bad feeling, again, they're saying, this is obviously the devil's using this person to try to discourage us, to try to uh, you know, make us doubt our faith. And we just need to embrace being persecuted for Christ. That's going to be how they process that. So you got to keep that in mind. Um, but the other thing is how confusing it can be sometimes these days in having a conversation with Latter-day Saints. Um, Phil, I remember last year you brought up a conversation you had with a Mormon co-worker. Is that... Yeah, it was a Mormon co-worker, and he boldly proclaimed the gospel, saying, we're saved by grace. There's nothing you can do to receive your salvation. To which the Mormon said, amen, brother. And so that resulted in Phil walking away, saying, what just happened? It's not supposed to go this way, right? <laughs> um, so if you were to ask a Latter-day Saint, if, you're, if you weren't really sure what denomination they were, hey, what church do you go to? they might respond by saying, oh, I'm LDS. You know, you're Baptist, we got Lutherans, non-denominational, I'm LDS. We're just another branch of Christianity. That's kind of how they're going about branding themselves these days. They want so badly to be accepted as brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, what I've found is the deeper you dive into LDS doctrine, the more clear it is. We got two very different faiths we're dealing with here. If someone were to listen to a conversation between me and a Mormon missionary, they might say, okay, yeah, you guys pretty much believe the same thing. But once you start getting to like the five, six, seven minute mark, okay, we got some differences. And then if we uh, started listening for another 20, 30 minutes, you'd be able to really separate and see where these differences are. We got an iceberg up here. If you're on a boat or a ship, um, obviously, you can only see that top tip of the iceberg, right? Um, so when it comes to missionaries talking with investigators, an investigator is someone who is curious about the LDS church that missionaries are meeting with. And so that top part kind of represents the doctrines that they will teach the investigator. And a number of those beliefs on the tip of the iceberg sound very, very much in line with mainstream Christianity and the Bible. And so if people are meeting with missionaries, and, and also another thing is, the majority of people that do convert to the LDS church 
have a Bible-based background to some degree. They have somewhat of a Bible-based background. And what that often results in is people converting to the LDS church and not really knowing very much about their faith. Because as you can see, there's the bottom three quarters of the iceberg, and those are things that they're not going to teach the investigator. They would actually prefer that a number of those things stay hidden or that they don't know about because the things like uh, church history, the history of Joseph Smith, and some of the deeper doctrines of the LDS church. Um, I've talked with a couple new converts this last year, and I will take them to passages in Isaiah, which clearly in Isaiah 44, 6, it says, I am the first, I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And then at the end of verse 8, it says, is there any other God beside me? There is no other God. I know not one. And so again, God is all-knowing. If he doesn't know of any other gods, the clear conclusion is that's because there are no other gods. And I'll, I'll walk the new converts through this passage and say, so how many gods do you believe there are? Well, obviously there's one. Did you know that the LDS church teaches that you can become a god? No. I, I, they didn't teach me that. No. Um, so we're going to talk about a, a little bit more about that. But the missionaries will, at some point or another, piece by piece, teach new converts about the deeper doctrines of their faith. But it's really small pieces of doctrines, a little bit at a time, when the missionaries feel like they're ready to accept these deeper doctrines. The illustration that kind of comes to my mind is the frog that's being boiled alive in water. The frog will jump into the water when it's nice and comfortable, but just one degree at a time, the water's getting hotter and hotter, and before the frog knows it, it's, it's cooked alive. So when it comes to new converts to the LDS church, it can be a very slow, but a very deep indoctrination. This is a picture that I, I really have, uh, I really come to love. It kind of represents the imputed righteousness of Jesus. As you can see, there's at the top picture there, there's a guy standing there with filthy garments, and that represents us. We have broken God's law, and we're born sinners. And so we're the ones with the filthy garments, and there's a punishment that comes with that, right? For, for being sinful, the, the wages for sin is death. Then as you see Jesus, he's carrying the cross. He's got perfectly white, spotless garments because he's perfectly righteous. He's never sinned. He's perfectly fulfilled every single law, never breaking one. In the next couple pictures, we see uh, this is only applicable for people who have put their faith in the one true Christ. This is not applicable to every single person um, who's ever existed. So as you can see, um, if someone puts their faith in Jesus, in the third picture, you see Jesus giving the guy a hug. And in the fourth picture, you'll notice a, a trade, an exchange, right? So uh, for those who have put their faith in the one true Jesus, we receive the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus also takes on our sin. And he, that's why he, and then he takes the punishment for our sins as well. And as you can see from the first picture all the way to the last picture, we are not doing anything. Jesus did all the work, and um, it's, everything is about Jesus and the work that he did um, on the cross for us. So I posted this picture on Facebook a little while ago with the caption, 
The work has already been done. The only question is, will you accept it? And I have a, a Mormon friend who saw this and commented on it. And I just wanted to give you, I guess, an example of how confusing it can be sometimes. And here's what my friend said. 100% agree. People tend to look at Latter-day Saints and think that we believe that we're saved by our works plus faith. We don't believe that. Those who believe they need to do something to earn eternal life don't understand the law of grace. Do we all need Christ? Yes. Do I accept all that Christ did? Yes. Am I fully dependent on Christ? Absolutely. That can be a little confusing. These guys are saying all the right things. Who are we to say that they're not brothers and sisters in Christ when they're clearly professing these biblical truths? I have another friend who grew up in the Mormon church and then about five, six years ago left the LDS church and is now a solid, sold-out Christian for Jesus. And uh, he responded to my Mormon friend's comment. So it was kind of fun seeing the two just respectfully go back and forth. And here's what he said. That's not what I remember from Mormonism. I feel like you're playing with semantics here. I'm not referring to the free LDS version of salvation, which is merely resurrection and entering into one of the three kingdoms of heaven. I am re referring to dwelling in the presence of God. Surely you don't believe the gift, that gift has been given to all regardless of faith, do you? So what my Christian friend did here is he asked a question that added clarity to the conversation. And that's a really good tactic that we should use, as opposed to saying, you guys believe this and here's why it's wrong. A better way to do that is by asking questions to add clarity to the conversation. And here's what he was getting at. In the LDS church, the word salvation can mean a number of different things. Um, the most common way, general salvation, is referring to the resurrection that, um, and getting to live in one of the three kingdoms of heaven. Because Jesus died on the cross, that atonement and that gift is automatically applied to every single person, whether you're an atheist, Satanist, you get to go to one of the three kingdoms of heaven. And that is a free gift. So if you ask them, do you believe that you're saved by grace? They can say, yeah, that, that's a free gift. But when it comes to eternal life, uh, so there's three kingdoms, the telestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial on the very top. God and Jesus, as two separate beings, live on that top kingdom, and eternal life is specifically referring to that top kingdom. And that absolutely is not a free gift. Um, and so one of the things of confusion is that when Christians talk about salvation, there can be a misunderstanding because the Christian might not be aware that there are different versions of salvation to the Latter-day Saint. Um, but another thing that compounds it is that there's a number of Latter-day Saints that don't know that eternal life is specifically referring to the presence of God. I was talking with a, a missionary a couple weeks ago, and he was trying to correct me and saying, well, Paul, you know, eternal life, it's not living in the presence of God, it's literally just living eternally. Um, if you can read this, this is a screenshot from an article on their LDS Church website and on eternal life. It says, immortality is to live forever as a resurrected being. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, everyone will receive this gift. Eternal life, or exaltation, 
is to live in the presence of God and to continue as families. So it's pretty laid out on the article right there. And so that's one thing we can actually do to help them understand their own doctrine sometimes is to just say, hey, on your, on your website, it actually says eternal life is specifically referring to living in the presence of God. So instead of asking them, are you saved by grace? Actually, before I continue, uh, my Mormon friend responded to my Christian friend and said, uh, to answer your question directly, we do not believe that entrance into the presence of God is a free gift. And that's the part of the conversation that can become fruitful because we've identified a difference. They're not just agreeing with us on everything. Okay, there's a difference. Let's talk about that. And what does God's word say? This is kind of a, a three-pronged approach that I try to keep on the forefront of my mind when I'm talking with people about the Bible. Um, so 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, so we're supposed to test the spirits. What do we test things against? The truth. If something conflicts with the truth, we just know by, by default it's it's not true if it conflicts with the truth. So what then is the truth? John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And so regardless of what the Mormon missionary or whoever might say, we're gonna take what they say and test that against God's word so when it comes to our Mormon, my Mormon's friend, her response here that says that eternal life is not a free gift of God, let's compare that against God's word real quick and, and let's see what it says. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's pretty clear the gift of God is eternal life. It is a free gift. Uh, John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So, um, the only requirement and qualification for eternal life is to believe in the Son, a sincere trust and sincere belief that will produce good fruits. This is a response that they might give sometimes. Um, they'll say, well, Paul, take a look at Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So they will interpret this and say, well, the will of the Father, that's obviously good works, right? And so you have to do good works if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But thankfully, Jesus actually gives us the answer for what the will of the Father is. Uh, John 6:40. for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. It's, a, it's simple, it's beautiful, and it's, it's clear. Are there any questions so far? I know we're just kind of getting started. Okay. Um, let's see, I wasn't supposed to go there yet. Um, so if you were to ask, a, uh, I, I guess, let's see, a year and a half ago, 
I was painting uh, my playhouse with two missionaries. They, they like to come over for uh, mission projects or service projects and stuff like that to kind of check things on, the, on their box so they can report to their mission president all the things that they've done uh, while they're on their mission. And as we were painting the playhouse, uh, we were listening to music and the song came on In Christ Alone. I was like, that, that's a pretty cool song to, to listen to with these missionaries. And so during our next meeting, I asked one of them, so is my faith in Jesus enough for me to receive eternal life? You know, I believe in him as my Lord and Savior and um, I, I wanna live my life for him, is that enough? And one of them bluntly stated, no, it's not enough. And, and I actually appreciate that kind of honest answer because it's happened a number of times where missionaries, they want to be as agreeable with you as possible because they want you to think that we believe the same thing. They wanna invite you to the church because you believe the same thing and because you're getting to be good friends. Um, but if a missionary is willing to, to disagree with you, I mean, give me an honest Mormon any day of the week and I, I'd love to chat with them. But there's kind of two things that come to my mind when, he's, when the response is, no, your faith in Jesus isn't enough. And the first one being, okay, well, wait a minute. You're telling me that when Jesus was beaten and whipped 39 times, when he was punched, when he was mocked, when he had the crown of thorns on his head, when he had the nails through his hands and his feet, and every time he pulled himself up to breathe as his back got splinters on the back of the cross, you're telling me that wasn't enough for my eternal life? that the work of Jesus is insufficient. You know, so, I mean, the first thing is that's a slap in the face to, to Jesus, saying that what he did isn't enough. But the other thing, it, it begs the question, well, okay, what then is, like, what do I need to do to receive eternal life? Okay, let, let's talk about that. What do you believe I need to do to receive eternal life? And the response that they might give might be something along the lines of, well, you gotta have faith, you need to repent of your sins, and you need to endure till the end. That's a pretty Bible-based answer, right? We, we would agree with that. But um, again, the, the deeper you dive into Mormonism, the more you'll learn that when they say the same thing you say, they do not mean the same thing that you mean. It's the exact same word, but with two different, two different meanings, two different definitions. So let's start with repentance. Um, I think this, does, this passage does a really good job of kind of laying out the framework of what repentance is according to the Bible. Uh, Joel 2, 12 through 13, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So, we know that repentance of the heart is turning away from your sin and towards God. And in terms of salvation, repentance of the heart is a one-time decision that leads to a lifetime of sanctification. Um, anyone who truly, uh, sincerely repents of their sin and has faith in Jesus, they are sealed to the end. The Bible is very clear on that. And if you were to tell them, give them this definition, they would agree with you. They would say, oh yeah, amen, we, we agree, we believe the same thing. But for them, there are 
different levels of repentance or different requirements for repentance based on how serious of a sin that you commit. For example, if I were to commit adultery, that's the repentance process for that is going to look different than the repentance of stealing our little Reese's candy bar. Um, for that, you can, they would say, if, you, you know, if, it's some, if it's a small sin, yeah, you can go, go directly to God and be forgiven of that sin. But if you commit a serious sin, um, you have to do some more things in order to repent of that sin. That might, it's kind of small. I'm not sure if you can see it. This is another screenshot from their website. The title of the article is, What Things Do I Need to See My Bishop About to Be Forgiven? Um, the short answer is that you need to confess serious transgressions or sins to your bishop. Um, another article titled, Why and What Do I Need to Confess to My Bishop? At the bottom you see it says, uh, Some mistakes require confession to the bishop before you can receive the Lord's forgiveness. So, if I were to commit a serious sin, and if I were to confess that sin to um, my, my wife and my friends, and asking them for prayer and support and accountability, I would not be forgiven of that sin in the LDS church because I did not confess my sin specifically to my bishop. You can only be forgiven of serious sins after you confess to your bishop. But again, what does God's word say? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So who do we need to confess our sins to? the one who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. And one of the beautiful things that we have here is that I can go directly to Jesus with any sin I've ever committed, lay it down at the foot of the cross, and receive full forgiveness of that sin. And that's what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus is I can go directly to him and, be, and receive full forgiveness of my sins. Now, is it good to confess our sins to one another? Yeah, yeah, if there's a sin that we're struggling with, um, absolutely, we confess our sins to each other for, again, prayer, support, and accountability to help us overcome particular sins that we might be struggling with. But are we required to confess our sins to each other or to our pastors or elders to receive God's forgiveness? No. We don't. This is a worksheet that I kind of created, and I was going over this topic with uh, two missionaries that came out to my work on my lunch break. I got them some sub sandwiches from Subway, and we had lunch together and talked about this. And um, as you can see, there's a number of involved parties here on the left-hand side. That's kind of the LDS version of how forgiveness might take place. On the right side, it's just so beautiful and so simple. It's just you and Jesus. And um, when I passed this to the missionaries, one of them got a pen out, and he was about to draw something on it. Then he put the pen back down and said, you know, this isn't exactly what we believe, but I'm just not sure how to draw it. And so in terms of forgiveness, again, there's a lot of moving pieces. It can be a very convoluted thing in the LDS church. Um, but again, uh, at, at the end of the meeting, I said, guys, I love you, I care about you. 
And more than anything, I hope and I pray that one day you guys will have a relationship with Jesus like this, where he can be your personal and direct mediator and savior. Um, what about enduring till the end? You know, that's kind of one of the answers they might give. You have to endure till the end. Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures till the end will be saved. So obviously we would agree with them on that point, right? Or would we? Uh, this is a screenshot from their missionary handbook that all missionaries are supposed to read. You can see the title is, What is my purpose as a missionary? And in the underlined part, it says, um, the things we must do if we're to endure till the end include the endowment and sealing ordinances of the temple, praying, fasting, studying the scriptures, following the example of the Savior, and obtaining Christ-like attributes. When they say becoming like Jesus, they mean becoming more righteous, and you become more righteous by doing more righteous deeds. When we say becoming more like Jesus, we know that means we want to be patient, we want to be loving, we want to grow in those Christ-like attributes, but we know that we're not building up our own righteousness in the same way that they, they would mean that. But as you can see, when they say endure till the end, I guess again, when we say that, we know that that's clinging onto your faith and not disowning Jesus uh, and, until the end. But when they say it, there's a lot of works and ordinances baked into it. And so that's just one thing to be aware of when they say endure till the end. That's another example. We'll say the same thing, but we'll have different meanings and different definitions. We're going to talk about temple works and temple ordinances real quick. Because those are things that you must do if you're to endure till the end. Inside the temple, there's three main temple works that go on, and these are what the names of, of what they're called, uh, receiving your endowments, you got to be sealed to your spouse, and baptisms for the dead. These are ordinances that go on inside of their temples. Um, these are also referred to as saving ordinances, meaning you cannot enter into the, the celestial kingdom and receive eternal life unless you partake of these saving ordinances. And so if you connect the dots between the, just the fact that these are saving ordinances with that second point right there, you have to be sealed to your spouse. Obviously, that means you have to be married and then sealed to your spouse. So in the LDS church, if you're in your upper 20s or older, that is not looked upon as a good thing. And I can't imagine the, uh, the pressure and the stress and the um, subconsciousness that might come from that, unfortunately. Um, just that pressure to get married. And if you're not married, there's something wrong with you. But more importantly, it just conflicts with the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament. Matthew 19, 12. For there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So Jesus is talking about singleness here. And he's saying, hey, if you're single and living for God, that's fantastic. That's great. <laughs> and then the Apostle Paul. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. So the Apostle Paul, the, one of the biggest guys in the New Testament, he wasn't married. And he's saying it can be a good thing to be unmarried. 
Matthew 22:30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Um, so the purpose of being sealed to your spouse in the temple is the implication is that you will continue to be married to them in the afterlife in heaven. They call it celestial marriage, where you're basically going to be married and you keep your families together forever. Um, Jesus specifically speaks against that and says, no, no one's going to be married in heaven. You're all going to be brothers and sisters in Christ. So Jesus specifically speaks against that. Um, a simple response, the, if this conversation were to come up, would be, uh, okay, if being sealed to your spouse and being married is a requirement for eternal life, why weren't Paul and Jesus married? Um, and more importantly, if, if being married and sealed was, really was a requirement for eternal life, why would Paul and Jesus say that it's a good thing to be single if they're going to miss out on eternal life? Again, it, it just really doesn't make any sense when you actually dig into the Bible. Um, any questions on any of that or on anything else that might come to your mind? Okay. Quiet audience. Well, let's keep going. Um, so uh, the temple is a big part of the LDS church because, again, the saving ordinances can only happen inside of the LDS temple. Um, one of the things that you'll notice is on top of the temple, you will never ever see a cross. Um, what you will see is a golden statue of the angel named Moroni. And we'll get to talk about him in the next couple weeks. Protestant churches and, um, and LDS churches can look very similar on the outside. One of the most obvious giveaways is if you see a cross on it, it's not an LDS church. Uh, LDS churches, you'll never see a cross on them on the outside, and you'll never see a cross on the inside of the building either. And so it's very ironic that they refer to themselves as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but they don't have the most universally acknowledged symbol of Jesus anywhere on their buildings. Um, but the LDS Church is actually very thoughtful because inside of all their temples, they actually have a list. And um, the way it works is after you have died, and if you were not baptized into the LDS church, at some point you would make it on their list, okay? And so it's a list of dead people who are never, never partook of the saving ordinances. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but, uh, Let's take Johnny, for example, okay? Well, actually, before we talk about Johnny, um, so it's common for teenagers to start going to the temple and to partake of the saving ordinances when they become in their teenage years. It's also common for uh, when Mormons become eight years old to get baptized. That's the common age for baptism. They believe that eight years old is the, uh, the age of accountability. So, there's no sin that counts against you before your eighth birthday. So the night before your eighth birthday, you can steal as many cookies as you want. You can steal your siblings' toys, be as bad as you want to. But on your eighth birthday, you better get your acts together. Um, no biblical support whatsoever. So, okay, take Johnny, for example. Uh, Johnny was baptized when he was eight years old. 
and now he's a teenager. He wants to become more Christ-like and grow closer to Christ, and so he's going to go to the temple and do some of his temple works. So he gets to the temple, and he puts on some white temple garments. He walks up the, up the stairs and down into the baptismal font. And this is kind of what it looks like. And as you can see, um, there's a man sitting next to him. He's a temple worker. And it kind of looks pretty similar to how our pastors might baptize people here at Eastridge. Um, but remember, Johnny was already baptized when he was eight. So this time, when he gets baptized, the temple worker will say, he's not going to say, I baptize thee Johnny in the name of Jesus. He's going to say, I baptize thee Derek in the name of Jesus. Bring him back up. Dip him back down again. I baptize thee Phil in the name of Jesus. I baptize thee Ryan in the name of Jesus. And so they do this about 10 times or so, just checking those names, people off the list. Um, and then Johnny gets up, he gets out, another teenager gets up and gets down, and they will sometimes do youth group field trips to the temple to participate in this ordinance. And they do the same thing for the endowment ceremony as well. Um, yes? Yes, yeah, yeah, women, they get baptized for other women, typically, yeah. So yeah, both men and women get to participate in this ordinance. Was that? So they, they get baptized for themselves when they're eight years old, and then they get baptized for the dead when they um, become, their, become teenagers, basically, in their teenage years. That's when they start getting baptized for the dead. I believe that's how it works. I don't think I've ever seen or heard of a... I think they try to keep it gender-specific, I believe. Uh, was there... Yeah. Yeah, uh, the names on the list are those people who died not being baptized and they're going to be saved and go to a church. That's the hope. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. We're gonna, yeah, Solomon. Are there limits to how many times they can baptize for the dead? Or can they just do like a speed run and go through a bunch of people? That's what, that's what Johnny is doing here is he's doing, you know, Derek... Phil, Solomon, Lincoln, you know, he's just over and over. That's what they do. Um, because again, these are saving ordinances. If you don't do these, then you cannot enter into eternal life. So for the endowment ceremony, we'll, we'll try to get through this. Um, it's, the endowment ceremony is basically a higher level of commitment to God. And so uh, let's stay with Johnny. He, uh, he's now 17 years old. He's preparing to go on his mission. He meets with his bishop. Bishop says, yep, I think you're ready to go on your mission, but first, you gotta receive your endowments. So Johnny goes to the temple again, gets his temple garments back on, and this time, instead of going into the baptismal font, he goes into this first room, and the endowment ceremony is broken up into a couple different parts. The first part is the washing and anointing. Um, so that's kind of a ceremonial cleansing to prepare you spiritually for the rest of your journey through the endowment ceremony. Johnny is now given a new name, like Noah or Moses or something. So when Jesus returns at the resurrection, he's not going to say, Arise Johnny. He's going to say, Arise Moses. That's his new name that he will be called at the resurrection. He is given um, a pair of sacred undergarments. 
these can be commonly referred to as holy underwear. They're literally supposed to wear them underneath their clothes. And again, these are very, very sacred things to them. And so some people kind of like to mock them for, for doing that. But again, if you do that, you're going to be an anti-Mormon and um, you're not going to have a, produ a producible, a fruitful conversation with them. And so definitely keep that to a minimum, if not totally uh, eliminate from whatever, <laughs> whatever it is that you guys are talking about. So, but these sacred undergarments, they're literally, they're supposed to wear them every single day. And um, they're supposed to protect them from spiritual danger and spiritual warfare is what they're taught. So after Johnny gets his sacred undergarments, him and a group of Latter-day Saints, they get to go to the next room in which they sit down and they watch a, a projector film, basically. And there's five parts of this film. The first one is creation, the creation of the world, how God and Jesus created the world. They believe that matter is eternal. So they, believe, they don't believe that God created the universe from nothing. They believe that there was already matter that existed and that Jesus basically just formed, took that matter that already existed and formed it into our universe today. Um, the fall of Adam and Eve. They will actually describe this as a good thing. They describe it as a fall upward because it was a necessary step in order for us to become like God, i.e. to become God. I was talking with a missionary about this topic and um, he said, he was, the way he explained it to me is it was actually necessary for Adam and Eve to sin because in order to know right from wrong, you have to experience wrong. You have to choose to sin first and after you know what evil is, then you know, then you have the choice to choose, okay, right or wrong. Now that I know what wrong is, I can choose to do right and follow God, was kind of how it was explained to me. So you can't know good from evil unless you experience evil. And so I said, okay, so did Jesus ever sin? No, no, Jesus was perfect, okay? Did Jesus know right from wrong? And he just kind of looked up huh. <laughs> and the conversation went on, but that's just one of those things that's like, okay, let's critically think through this with them in a loving way and ask them questions to just get them, to help them think through this stuff. So, oh, the next one. Um, the atonement of Jesus. They believe that the atonement, again, enables every single one of, every single person on earth to go to the one of the three kingdoms of heaven. The great apostasy, where the church of Jesus Christ was destroyed and the gospel was lost. And then the restoration of the gospel through Joseph Smith. And so, again, when you know, like, if someone were to just look at the first three things there, they might say, oh, that's in line with Christianity. But again, when you look at the details, no, there's false doctrines packed into every single one of those points. So, after the film is over, Johnny is instructed to get up and approach this veil. Okay, it's like a veil, kind of like a curtain. And um, on the other side of this curtain is the celestial room, which symbolizes the celestial kingdom in heaven. Okay. So it, this symbolizes the, the, the celestial kingdom and things you must do in order to progress and go to the celestial kingdom. And Johnny can't just pass through the veil. He needs to do something before passing through the veil. So he approaches the veil 
and on the other side, there's an arm that sticks through the veil. What does Johnny need to do? What's one of the saving ordinances that he needs to do to pass through the veil and enter into the celestial room? Secret handshakes. And, um, and again, this is, if you do not partake of that sacred ordinance, you're not getting into the kingdom of God. You're not getting into the celestial kingdom. You're missing out on eternal life. And so there's also key phrases that you need to say as well, like basically a, a secret code that you got to say as well. So Johnny does the secret handshake and he gets to advance into the celestial room. And also at some point during, the, I believe at the beginning of the ceremony, Johnny is actually uh, asked to take an oath of secrecy of what goes on inside the temple because, um, because these things are just way too sacred to talk about outside the temple. Because they're too sacred, you can't talk about them, anything that goes on during the endowment ceremony. Is the LDS church really trying to keep these things sacred? Or are they trying to keep them secret? Right? Um, because the fact is, again, if we're remembering that iceberg, if the majority of converts or investigators were aware of these things, that would significantly decrease the amount of people that convert to the LDS church. And so they have a lot of motive to not tell people about that bottom three quarters of the iceberg. So anyway, uh, Johnny finishes the endowment ceremony. He goes home. A month later, he returns to the temple to do the endowment ceremony again. Only this time, he does it for Zach. And a month later, he does it for Bill. Because the more you go to, the, because this is, again, the temple is the, where God lives. And that's how you, you become more like Christ, by going to the temple and doing these. The more you do these temple works, the more Christ-like you're going to become. So, and then Johnny has kids. He gets married. He has kids. His kids go through the exact same ordinances when they get older. And the grandkids, they go through the exact same ordinances when they get older. And that is what a typical family in Utah and Idaho uh, look like, because those are the two most packed uh, Mormon states uh, in, in the United States. Utah and Idaho are very, very dense with Mormonism. So, again, these things are sacred. So if you're actually talking with a Latter-day Saint, you should never really bring up undergarments and you should never bring up secret token handshakes. Um, you can vaguely, generally talk about the endowment ceremony. They might interact with you. But if, if, I'm not, if I'm telling you don't talk to them about these things, why am I telling you these things? The first point is, I think it's important that you guys are aware of these things. If I was in your seats, I would want to know about this. If I was an investigator, I would want to know about this. But the other thing is, I hope that... So, every time... So every week, not only are they encouraged to read the Book of Mormon on a daily basis, on Sundays they go to their church on a weekly basis, they put their sacred undergarments on on every single day, and every time they see their undergarments in the mirror, they're reminded of the covenants that go on inside the temple and the things that they do inside of there. And every single time they watch that endow the endowment ceremony film, because it's the exact same every time. When Johnny goes for person after person after person, it's the exact same thing, the exact same picture film that's just packed with false doctrine. 
many missionaries grow up with, that's all they know. They, and, and so a lot of them literally just cannot see the gospel in any other way because this is all they've ever known. And it's just been packed and beaten into their brains ever since they were born. And so one of my motivations for telling you guys about these things is to help you maybe develop a little bit more of a compassion and understanding for some of them literally just cannot, they need a Christian to walk them through some scriptures in God's word. Yeah. So the question is, are there, is there, is there only one temple or are there more than one temple? Uh, in the Old Testament times, there's only one, right? There are over a hundred temples over the world today. And um, lately they've got, actually been hammered with legal uh, lawsuits in like the recent year because they've been investing their tithing money to increase their profits, to increase their bank account. So, uh, so in recent years, they're saying, okay, we need to use this money to build more temples. Otherwise we're going to keep getting sued. <laughs> and so they have motivation to use, they literally have like over a hundred billion, just money, just sitting in a bank account right now. Um, and it's, they've kind of been getting blasted for it. Yeah. Another. Yeah, um, it, it's another temple work. It's someone who works in the temple. Generally, that's, I guess, the equivalent of like an elder or a bishop or a pastor. And they're just, that's their, that's their service, going to the temple instead of doing the ceremony. So what does he do the second time he goes to the uh, The person behind the curtain or Johnny? So, he, so in the same way that they do baptism for the dead, they do the endowment ceremony for dead people also. So the next time Johnny goes, like the second, third, or fourth time, one time he's going to do the endowment ceremony for you because you died and you never did the endowment ceremony, right? And so now he's doing it for you so that in the afterlife you can accept the work that Johnny did on your behalf. And the parallel I always try to make there is that's what Jesus did for you guys. Like you believe that, you know, if I die, you can do the works on my behalf. That's what Jesus did for you. Do you see what you're missing out on? So uh, any other? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1980s, and two elders escorted me to the areas where, I'll say, Gentiles, uh -huh. non-Mormons, could go, and then I followed up with a film might have been similar to something you mentioned. Oh. Sure. Uh huh. So I'm curious. Is that when just when they open, or after they've been open for a while?
Oh, interesting. And then they closed it down those areas like the endowment rooms. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if they closed the baptistry down, but I clearly remember that one. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think it's similar with all, new, all temples that are, are newly built. They will allow people to come in and go through them. Um, but my, my personal opinion is that they do that so that you guys can go in and say, oh, this is really cool. Then after they uh, officially say, okay, this is now a, a temple recommend Mormon thing only, I believe that they might go in and make some changes because in temples in the past, they have a lot of Freemason symbols, uh, like the all-seeing eye, praying hands, uh, a beehive, uh, the compass in the square. There's all sorts of Freemason symbols that have previously been inside of the temples. And so I think there might be a little bit of deception there, like, oh, this is what it looks like, and then they might go in and change it afterwards. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, Veronica, do you have a question? Yeah, I'd like to know if they read the Bible, what version, if they do, and what's, what's important about the Book of Mormon? Mm -hmm. So what version of the Bible do they use? Do they read the Bible? And uh, what is the Book of Mormon about? So there's a lot of that that I'm going to cover in the next couple of weeks. And so it, we're already a little bit over. And so if you have any questions, write them down and ask me next week. But uh, let's close in prayer real quick. Uh, I, I guess before I do, real quick, uh, you guys had a piece of paper that I handed out, and it says growing in gratitude. So um, I guess the application to just think about this week, for me, I've, I've noticed that when I learn about the, the counterfeit Christian religions, and I see how they have things that look very similar, but in truth, they're actually very different. You know, we see that Jesus did all the work for us. They don't believe that. Uh, we know that we can go directly to Jesus in prayer for forgiveness of any sins and have that personal direct relationship. They don't, a lot of them don't, don't believe that that's how it works. And so I want to encourage you guys to meditate on that this week. Grow in your appreciation that you guys do have a personal relationship with Jesus and how much of a gift that really is. Um, so let's go ahead and pray real quick. Jesus, um, thank you once again for being our personal, direct mediator that we can go to for any sin we've ever committed. Thank you for also surrounding us with brothers and sisters in Christ that can support us um, whenever we do need that. Um, please bless our week. Thank you for doing all the work on our behalf, and I pray that our faith in you would grow uh, more each day. Amen.